Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the market failure podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on February 18th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University and McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank, this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Dana Matthew, professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She holds a joint appointment at the Colorado School of Public Health and was the co-founder of the Colorado Health Equity Project, a medical legal partnership. Professor Matthew served as senior advisor to the director of the Office of Civil Rights for the EPA in 2015, and currently she's a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow. She's a prolific scholar, and her new book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in Healthcare, was just published by New York University Press. Big welcome, Dana. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick and Frank. Thank you for having me. Well, I must say the book is a fascinating read. I appreciated the way you managed to combine uh, really strong legal analysis, uh, social science research that, uh, alas, so few law professors are really good at, you're an exception, and some great anecdotes. I found it quite compelling, and uh, I highly recommend it to our listeners. Uh, we'll put a, a link to the Amazon page, um, uh, unless unless we've, you've got a page where you get a better cut of the royalties. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Both Amazon and NYU Press have a, a link. Thank you for asking. We'll be able to do that. So anyone familiar with your scholarship will know of your work on disparities, I, I guess starting something more than a decade ago now. But where did this particular scholarly journey start for you? Uh, what research or experiences drove this new book? It's almost personal experience, I can say. I have heard the stories of so many so many men and women, so many families that have been the victims of uh, discrimination in the healthcare system. And at the same time, I'm married to a physician. And so I know that those who are discriminating are doing so without any intent to do so. Um, and so my personal experience was to try and unravel this very strange tension between a healthcare system that was doing poorly serving people of color and yet a healthcare system that was populated by people who wanted to do the right thing. I do agree that is a huge problem and something that really comes through in the book. And I'm wondering if you could describe the biased care model in comparison with older models of racism or how race may work in affecting decision making. Uh, thank you for the question. When I was a kid on the playground in New York City, uh, a little kid came up to me and explained to me by using the N-word, it's the first time it was ever used in my experience, why she wouldn't play with me and why everyone on the playground should also not play with me. That is explicit bias. That is a, a very express, uh, intentional kind of, pres uh, of prejudice. The bias care model talks about something completely different. It's not racism. It is a model about the unintentional discrimination that arises from automatic negative thoughts stored over a lifetime and unwittingly called up or triggered to direct interactions or influence interactions with patients. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me a bit of um, some of the work that I know Rachel Godsell has been doing in, uh, and Jerry Kong in terms of implicit bias and also moving even beyond implicit bias to point out 
different ways in which uh, certain types of, um, I don't know, just fundamental psychological um, orientations can lead to decision-making that is not really, you know, that someone may not, not be at all conscious of their bias, and yet they're still, if you looked at their behavior um, retrospectively, you'd notice the patterns, which I think your book just shows so well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, my book does build on Jerry's phenomenal work um, and the work of many others who have used the implicit bias model in other settings. It's been used uh, to show why employment discrimination occurs or why police bias uh, results in uh, more frequent killing of people of color under the same circumstances that you would uh, for people who are white. In the healthcare setting, it's particularly deadly uh, because doctors, nurses, physicians' assistants, clinicians do not realize that they themselves are victims of unconscious bias. And what does it do? Well, it actually informs judgments about treatment. It informs the amount of information that a physician or a clinician might give to a patient of color. It informs the likelihood that a patient of color is going to end up on a transplant list. So many parts of the biased care model are intended to show that unconscious discrimination is not harmless at all. In fact, it's deadly. We often hear talk of health disparities, um, but I wonder whether today more work Uh, more attention is being paid to sort of the broader issue of social determinants of health. Where do health disparities and social determinants overlap? And where don't they? I would say, Nick, that not only do health disparities and social determinants overlap completely, but my upcoming work will involve overlaying unconscious bias and unconscious racism on social determinants. So let me unpack that just a little bit. Health disparities are, I would argue, a symptom, a tip of the iceberg, evidence of the fact that health outcomes are influenced by the way that people live their entire lives. So the social determinants would tell us that when a person has unequal access to housing that is clean and safe, or a person has unequal access to fair educational opportunities, to food security, to physical safety in their communities, to all of these social determinants of health, that person's health outcomes necessarily will be inferior to people who have fair access to clean housing, fair education, good employment, and food security. There's been quite a lot of work done on what is sometimes called the two Americas, Uh, particularly the work of the Commonwealth Fund comes to mind. And this tends to sort of compare health outcomes in high-performing states or regions with low-performing states or regions. And um, it's not hugely surprising that the south and rural areas tend to be in the in the low-performing group. Is there a similar map for disparities? In many ways, there are, yes. Um, we say that we can tell more about life expectancy by your zip code than by any medical data that we might find in your medical record or your family history. This phenomena, often referred to the fact that place matters, tells us that people of color are subjected to environmental, geographic, and other social determinants that cluster in geographic areas. So I can, for example, 
uh, use the uh, environmental racism model. And I can show you that if you make a map uh, of all of the landfills, of all the power plants, uh, of all of the uh, highways uh, that are built and, 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 and use diesel fuel trucks or, or, or host diesel fuel traffic, those maps will also be clustered around minority communities. What does that mean? That means that the pollution, that means that the environmental uh, uh, offenses that these populations are suffering are in fact geographically located. That's just one example. But place definitely matters where healthcare and health outcomes uh, and disparities are concerned. Yes, the issue of race and place, I think, is such an interesting aspect of the disparities problem. And I mean, I see it certainly come up, you know, looking at maps of, say, urban areas. I mean, it's amazing when you look at maps of New York or Baltimore. I mean, just how incredibly segregated the cities are all over America. Um, and I know it's also coming up in even in Baltimore right now. There's a mass protest movement, actually a lot of Baltimore youth against a massive incinerator that's being planned uh, for some communities here. And in the Bronx as well, what was amazing was Fresh Direct was putting all of their trucks in the Bronx in a marginal minority neighborhood to bring healthy food to the rest of New York. Um, and so, you know, I think this is just a, a really recurring issue. And I, I think that the combination of the bringing, you're bringing together perspective on disparities and healthcare is so important here. And I'm wondering, do you see any hope in the Affordable Care Act and aspects of the Affordable Care Act? Uh, both in terms of just the statute as it is and also in terms of how it's been implemented? I see a lot of hope in the Affordable Care Act. For uh, nearly 18 million people, the Affordable Care Act gives us access to health care um, and expands the insured population significantly. Add to that, the Affordable Care Act has approximately 62 provisions that are directed toward health disparities, whether it's data collection, uh, demonstration projects, and so forth. But I want to return to this question of whether the health care that the Affordable Care Act gives access to is actually fair health care, is non-discriminatory health care, is high-quality health care, because I would argue that health care that is discriminatory is not high quality. So the Affordable Care Act, to answer your question, Frank, goes only so far in terms of giving access, helping to collect more information and improve the delivery product. But it doesn't change the unconscious bias problem that we're facing. Yes, I, I, I think it's in Chapter 8. Uh, you really take the view that the Affordable Care Act um, while providing equal access, doesn't provide equal quality of care. And I thought that was an incredibly uh, clever um, distinction to draw. Let's talk a little bit about where law fits into this. Um, because I guess sort of from, from looking a little bit from the outside, not being someone who's done much work in this area, um, yes, clearly there are health disparities. Um, but the good legal system is trying very hard to fix that. And then I read your first chapter, and I love that title because it really does set the theme. Bad law makes bad health. And I think in that chapter, you argue, quote, healthcare law became a mechanism by which prejudice inflicted harm on racial minority populations. And that sort of the law has taken us full circle back almost to colonial times. Can you uh, uh, expand on that a little bit? Sure. Thank you for the opportunity, because so many people 
Uh, let me fast forward to the end of the book, as you did, uh, Nick. So many people wonder why law has anything at all to do with addressing health disparities. Uh, shouldn't we let the healthcare system fix this on its own? Uh, even when we talk about unconscious bias, isn't that something too difficult for the law to handle? Well, I say no, it is not too difficult. And in fact, the law is a very important tool. Why? Because of the expressive value of law. When you think about the change in the social norm that occurred when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, you can recall that the hearts and minds of people in the South throughout the South were not immediately changed because that health care, uh, because that legal decision came down. But ah, the social norms were changed and they triggered a change in the behaviors, in the expectations, and all of the efforts that people put forward following that decision. You referred to the first chapter of the book and I argue that when the law sets social norms that do not uh, tolerate discrimination, health outcomes are improved for minorities. Health disparities are lessened. So you can think about the civil rights era when segregation was absolutely eliminated on an explicit basis from healthcare providers. Nick, Frank, we did not have to see marches in the street. We didn't see dogs or we didn't see uh, uh, fire hoses in order to desegregate hospitals and healthcare uh, clinics. No. The law changed and made it so that one could not get paid for discriminatory healthcare. It changed the social norm. And when the law changed, the behavior followed. And that's what I argue will happen today if we make unconscious bias illegal. So you're a true expert in the area of civil rights. Um, can you explain a little bit for the listeners where Title VI fits into this narrative, and particular, particularly what happened in two, in the 2001 Sandoval case that that so sort of um, uh, adds to the uh, the difficulties that you document? Sure, I would like to see Title VI restored to the weapon of choice. Uh, to that norm, social norm setting uh, role and function that it was intended by Congress to serve. Uh, that law absolutely prohibits the type of discrimination by race, color, and national origin that has been the source of health disparities throughout history, I would argue. However, in 2001, the Supreme Court finished a long line of cases that de- uh, that made that uh, statute powerless, that made it virtually ineffective for the type of behavior, the type of discrimination that we see today. So when the law was originally passed, intentional discrimination was the order of the day. It was the way in which prejudice manifested, bigotry manifested, segregation manifested, and the kinds of discrimination that led to health disparities prior to the 1960s were uh, occurring. However, we've seen a shift in behavior. If you look at popular polls today, explicit racism, explicit bias is no longer the acceptable social norm. That's progress. However, racism and discrimination have become much more subtle. Title VI has not kept up. I'm not the first person to say this, but it's important to see it in the healthcare space. Title VI addresses explicit bias, intentional racism, a racism that has gone by the by for the most part. And today we need Title VI to be updated to match the behavioral norms, which are more subtle 
more indirect and involve unconscious racism. Yes, I think that was such a powerful argument uh, in the book. And one of the things I think that is um, of interest that, you know, as, as somebody who works in both the health and privacy digital realms, um, a lot of times I find that the reformist communities, NGOs are sort of told, look, there's complete gridlock in Congress until at least 2021 um, <laughs> because of, of the composition of the House, et cetera, and that you need to focus your attention on the states. That's what, what I often hear. I'm wondering if if your sense is that this is something that can only be done on a national level with respect to reform of federal legislation, or if there are ways that the states as laboratories of democracy may be able to get out in front on some of these issues. Well, of course, I'd like to see both happen. Um, but I want to use Flint, Michigan, the recent example of lead contamination in the water, as an example for why I believe this must be done on a national level. Um, a little bit earlier, Nick, you asked me about social determinants of health. And I want to go back to that in order to answer the question about whether states can be a laboratory uh, for this kind of change. Uh, those social determinants are all organized by law. And we can see at the state and local level in different parts of the country incredible discrimination and inequality as pertains to all of these social determinants of health. We can see it in housing, we can see it in employment, we can see it in education. And using Flint, Michigan as the most recent example, we can see that state governments left to their own devices, not because they're necessarily malicious, but because they too are victims of unconscious bias and unconscious racism, which the federal law permits freely right now, can also visit tremendous harm on the health of minority populations. So we saw in Flint a decision that could only have been made if someone would imagine, and I'm going to use a very controversial phrase here, would imagine that the black lives, 70% of the lives in Flint are black, if those black lives were not considered of consequence enough to ask the question, should we obey the lead copper rule? Should we worry about the fact that people are calling in regularly and complaining about orange and brown water? Should we worry about that or should we worry about the $100 a day that we can save by rerouting water from a clean source to a dirty sauce source. I argue that these are all manifestations of unconscious bias, and all of the social determinants on state and local levels are subject to that type of bias. We need federal-level oversight, federal-level laws that are strong enough to uniformly change what is acceptable with respect to minority health. Yes, I am so glad you brought up uh, Flint, Dana, because uh, we're actually going to be doing a uh, special episode on Flint uh, in April for the Week in Health Law, and um, it's something that has been deeply concerning to me. I've been trying to follow the twists and turns of it, and in I just I'm dumbfounded very often by by the things, and, and I think that your work really helps us understand that this is not uh, a an exception. That in fact, for many communities, this is the rule. Uh, this sort of neglect. You see it, for example, the lead paint problems in many uh, northeastern cities, um, these exposures to lead. And I wanted to just quote one thing from your introduction where you stated that by one estimate, 83,570 minority patients die annually due to healthcare disparities. Um, and so I think these, these cold hard facts are really um, uh, difficult uh, to process, but have to be confronted. Um, in thinking about uh, situations like Flint 
or these sort of sudden crises that arise, do you think there is a place to have, say, legislation in place that can be proposed to state legislatures or to the federal government uh, it, at these moments? And maybe what groups might be involved, like maybe the NAACP Legal Defense Fund? Could other groups be involved to maybe uh, uh, take advantage of or to, to target their uh, resources and to target um, a channeling of the public outrage into some direct legislative uh, action? Sure. I think there's lots of ways in which uh, the NAACP, uh, lots of legal defense funds, lots of advocates, lots of even uh, forward-thinking physicians, uh, providers, and health policymakers could uh, readily adopt the legislative language that I propose in the back of the book uh, at the at the national level. I, I propose uh, three changes in Title VI. Specifically, I'd like to see the return of private causes of action. This was uh, taken away by the Sandoval case we referred to earlier in 2001. I'd like to see an introduction of the negligence standard with respect to uh, uh, unconscious bias and intentional bias so that a defendant who was taking reasonable evidence-based steps uh, to combat unconscious bias would have a, a perfect defense, um, but would also have incentive to do so in order to avoid liability. And thirdly, I'd like to see unintentional uh, bias and discrimination added as an actionable uh, uh, cause of action, as a part of the cause of action in Title VI. This can be done at the state level also. Um, but let me, let me continue uh, looking at what this would do in Flint, um, and using Flint as an example if we were to make those kinds of changes both on the national and the state level. You recall in the Flint crisis that there is a pediatrician, Dr. Mona uh, Hannah Atish, and she is the person that actually outs the problem from an epidemiological standpoint. She's seeing her patients on a regular basis, and the children from Flint are showing high blood lead level content. Um, and she uh, is the person who is because she is a physician thinking not only about her individual uh, patients, but thinking about them as a population, thinking about them within the social context and social determinants of their experience, she takes their cause public. She is a physician who has, in my view, incorporated the bias treatment model on the positive side. And she goes public and she says, my population is displaying something that must be environmental, that must be community-wide, and basically sounds the alarm so that we have notice of a problem that, as you said earlier, Frank, it's not just in Flint. It's in many cities across the country. What do we know about the makeup of the healthcare workforce? Uh, my impression is that uh, minorities make up a sizable uh, percentage of uh, the workforce, um, but white women are the largest group, and uh, those numbers are particularly the case with the lower-paying jobs. When you look at, uh, I don't know, the management of medical staff, um, when you look at medical schools, nursing schools, accreditation agencies, what should these folks be doing? Uh, great question, Nick, because if I may take that from a couple of vantage points, um, let me start with the fact that uh, unconscious bias is malleable. By malleable, I mean we can do something about it, even though I've described it and many others have as automatic, um, triggered thought, 
uh, as unintentional negative thought and unintentional me- uh, negative treatment. The fact is that we have 25 years worth of data to tell us that unconscious bias is malleable. That means we can do something about it. What can be done about it? One of the most important things we can do is diversify the medical workforce at all levels. So yes, we have a very diverse workforce in healthcare context, but mostly at the lower levels of the, that workforce. We still have a primarily and predominantly white male um, uh, senior medical uh, faculty at teaching institutions, senior medical delivery. Um, and as a result, we don't have the counter stereotypes that change unconscious bias. Other things that we can do besides diversify the workforce throughout the entirety of the work spectrum uh, are to engage in the kind of stereotype negation training that's very different from what we do right now in terms of cultural competency. Cultural competency is a wonderful way to address explicit bias, but implicit bias must be dealt with as though you were changing a habit. It must be a prolonged treatment that is designed to address that unconscious store of information that is incorrectly and most likely in contradiction to your explicit preferences informing your treatment and clinical decisions. The last vantage point I want to take this workforce question from is a, I guess I will call it a dirty little secret, uh, Nick, and that is that because unconscious bias is the result of environmental inputs. The music we listen to, the movies we hear, the images that appear on political um, television uh, that we have in the general discourse, everyone who is living in this environment has the same biases. So whether you have a Asian physician, whether you have an African-American physician, whether you have a white physician, some of the interviews that I did for this book were heartbreaking Why? Because they were not only patients who were the victims of unconscious bias. Take a woman, for example, who was a victim of excruciating fibroid pain. Fibroids are um, very, very painful and very common among African-American women. Um, But she was the victim of the stereotype that African-American women can tolerate more pain or maybe exaggerate their pain. And she was a victim of those stereotypes and perceptions unconsciously held by African-American physicians. So even though diversifying the physician workforce is an important counter-stereotype measure to combat unconscious bias, we also have to remember that African-American, Asian, Latino physicians themselves are going to be the victims in this country of unconscious bias as well. One of the things that we know to our cost as healthcare lawyers is that the healthcare system moves a little bit faster. (laughs) Difficult to believe sometimes, I know, but certainly a little bit faster than the law does and uh, certainly faster than uh, ameliorative legislation. As we look at sort of the the palette of healthcare changes that are coming to our system, calls for increased patient engagement, more patient-centered care, um, the increase in high technology facilities, um, increased use of very high tech precision 
personalized medicine that depends upon um, very uh, closely monitored clinical trials populations. I wonder whether, in fact, these things that we look at as good, the future, um, may actually make things worse in some ways with regard to the problems that you have uh, narrated. Um, because these kinds of experiences uh, may be harder for the populations that you talk about. Are we going to see full representation in these sort of modern techniques to improve healthcare? Well, I would go back um, to answer your question to uh, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attish, um, because any changes, uh, those that you've described, included, um, must be taken uh, with the patient and the patient population being served in mind. Uh, so let's take patient engagement. The reason I like that example is because that's a, a very important part of the biased care model. It turns out that patients, like doctors, have unconscious biases also. Uh, when patients were interviewed, for example, um, who found that they perceived discrimination from their uh, providers, uh, they became less engaged as a result. So the movement for patient engagement is a good thing. Um, but if it is a engagement that causes patients to determine they will no longer adhere to the recommendations of a physician or a provider that they believe has been uh, discriminatory, if it's engagement that will uh, cause a patient to, as a result of perceived discrimination, not I'll use a, a common term, lean into conversation and pull out of a physician conversation the kind of information that would be essential for their shared decision-making, then that patient engagement will actually not help a certain population uh, that is the victim of health disparities that we've been talking about. Uh, turning to the technologies that you have described, again, uh, using Dr. Mona Attish uh, as an example, a physician who has been sensitized to their own biases will see, as Dr. Mona saw, that not only the technology is part of the solution, but access to the technology must be considered. Not only having, for example, telemedicine or having a, um, a interoperability interoperability for health records is important, but making sure that social data goes into those electronic health records, that telecommunication is improved for people who are in rural and urban areas and don't typically have access. These are all parts of a physician that is treating the whole patient and the whole patient's context. That can be done as physicians and providers understand that their biases give them a form of myopia, and they don't ask those kinds of questions. And I just want to uh, add in one other um, anecdote or comparison that I think uh, might be of interest to listeners who are, I'm sure have already, their interest has, has been piqued greatly by the work, and, um, and get your thoughts on it, Dana, which is, I was reading this fascinating um, article in Business Week, and I'll post it to the show notes page, that was about how Silicon Valley is failing to hire minority programmers. And even when they establish so-called pipeline programs to really good computer science departments like at Howard, and they have very devoted um, faculty members who are trying to make the connections, that there just isn't 
an effort to, or they use cultural fit as an excuse for not hiring, or there just doesn't seem to be a sustained effort and follow through. And the ultimate uh, idea that seemed to come out of an ar uh, article like that was that you really have to hold accountable uh, these uh, large firms, large entities uh, to their results and not just to their efforts. And I'm wondering if you think there are some lessons um, there for how uh, hospitals in general, healthcare providers in general, should be going about and should be more aggressive in terms of their efforts to improve their diversity profile. Uh, I do think there are some lessons there. I want to return to the 84,000 unnecessary deaths number because I think that underscores how important it is that we not just see this as another diversity and inclusion initiative. This is a life and death issue. Uh, 84,000 lives unnecessarily lost was an estimate done by Dr. David Satcher um, when he looked at the statistical death rates for whites, blacks, uh, and, and compared them. Another very important measure was done by Dr. Thomas Leviste when he showed that 1.24 trillion, with a T, dollars over a six-year period is lost in unnecessary health care costs in the United States due to health disparities. I want to return to those numbers as I answer your question because it underscores the incredible importance of solving the health disparities problem in the healthcare context, um, even though we hear of this in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. So what we have learned from these other examples is that um, lives will hang in the balance if we do not change the social norm, and that's why law is the vehicle that I would like to see changed. So the voluntary efforts that we have seen in Silicon Valley are not enough. The regulatory efforts, we even have uh, strong regulatory requirements for cultural competency and so forth, uh, have not been enough. If we do not have legal efforts um, that will give private parties recourse to express their uh, dissatisfaction and to, uh, uh, to get redress for the violations against their civil rights in the healthcare system, we won't see these disparities move. In fact, we haven't seen them move. Over 80% of the measures for quality and access over the past 20 years have neither improved nor changed. We need to do something now to move that needle. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Matthew for joining us. Dana, it was a real treat. Thank you very much for having me. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? I am at Health PI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>